0: Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. And our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Guys, it's uh, it's summertime, officially, and uh, I know Mike at least was uh, hanging out at the beach with a corgi over Memorial Day weekend, so someone has started his summer correctly.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> you, you and Queen Elizabeth. She was there. It was fun. <laughs>
0: All Corgi owners have the same vacation plans, it seems. So, later in this episode, we're going to share uh, an interview that Laura Bradley, our colleague at VF.com, did with Jordan Klepper, the host of The Opposition with Jordan Klepper. It was kind of a new entry in the late night scene. But first, we wanted to maybe all catch up with each other and catch up with the year so far because it's going to be June 1st. It's the halfway point of the year. And uh, Mike, you and I, I think, of the, the poster children for catching up to movies really late around here. And we're very proud of ourselves for catching some good movies so far. Um, and I think maybe more people could use some guidance on what's worth catching up on. A lot of stuff from earlier in the year is available on iTunes. You can rent it now. Black Panther, I know, is on my local Redbox. So I think maybe we thought we'd start with Black Panther, which we have talked about. It's the number one movie of the year so far. This is, I mean, in terms of considering late year Oscar consideration, I think the more the year goes on, the more we have to really keep talking about Black Panther.
1: It's interesting to think about what will Black Panther's Um, footprint in the Oscar race be this year. You know, there was a time two months ago when it was like, obviously Ryan Coogler will be nominated for director and obviously, you know, there'll be some acting stuff, but, but time goes on and there will be a lot of more kind of traditionally Oscar friendly, um, entries in the race. And, you know, I I think I think you could still say pretty obviously, like, it's going to get some VFX love, it's going to get those kind of more traditional like categories where superhero movies generally perform very well. But I'm curious to think what what you guys think, or to know what you guys think. I mean, acting is easier because there's 20 slots than than directing where there's only five, uh, or screenplay where there's only five. But do we do we think that Black Panther is going to be a major force beyond the technical categories? Or a force at all?
2: Well, I'll tell you this, you know, from from both Sundance and Cannes, where, um, you know, we haven't really we didn't really see big awards contenders emerge from either festival. Usually by this time, you know, uh, this time of year, there's been a Manchester by the Sea, there's been a carol or there's been something. And we just haven't seen that yet. And so the more kind of, you know, we consider that and the more I've talked to various Oscar pundits, you know, who work at other publications or whatever, especially at Cannes. Everyone seems convinced that Black Panther is a lock for a Best Picture nomination at this point, which I think is fascinating. And I think it really will happen.
0: Uh, This sounds kind of strange, but the disappointment of Solo has made me believe even more in Black Panther because you look back and realize that a cultural phenomenon like that isn't easy. Like, it's not just something that Disney can engineer for themselves. Like, Black Panther really did have the goods. And I think that for an Academy that does seem to want to embrace blockbuster, sometimes, like, it, it, it does throw out kind of that nomination to a big movie. You know, Mad Max, Fury Road, like, wound up winning a lot of Oscars because it was the big blockbuster that had technical accomplishments. And I, I mean, I, it's hard for me to imagine an acting nomination for Black Panther because it's, you know, Chadwick Boseman is good, but he's, it's not like a, you know, a flashy performance and then it's such an ensemble piece. But I mean, it could it could do really well for itself. And at this point, like, I think it would be kind of it's a shame if they didn't recognize it.
2: I think the acting one that people have been talking most about is a supporting nomination for Michael B. Jordan as the film's villain. Well, sort of villain. So, yeah, I think that certainly seems more feasible than, than Chadwick Boseman. You know, he kind of suffers from the, the hero is never really the most interesting thing in the movie or rarely is. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just don't see it really having any other competition and we're almost at June 1st, you know,
0: in terms of like a blockbuster that the Academy wants to recognize.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I should have said at the beginning, yes, with, we tend to think of best picture now as. A nine nine entry category, and so it's easier to it's easier to come in for Best Picture oddly than it is for Best Director, and it seems very likely to me that if they ignored a phenomenon like that, that was one of the most amazing, you know, just pop cultural movie phenomenons that any of us has seen in a long time. I think that would be an act of almost sort of uh, relevancy suicide by the Academy.
0: They're very good at that, though, Mike. Don't forget. That's true. That's true. <laughs> If we're talking about cultural phenomenon blockbusters, though, like, I mean, it's possible that another contender we should be considering is A Quiet Place. Like, I honestly didn't even realize how massive this movie is. It's number four movie of the year. It's made $180 million domestically. That is crazy for a really cheap horror movie.
1: Yeah, I, I think that A Quiet Place is a really great answer to the question, what do you need to do to get people to go to a theater in 2018? Um, Because this, this film creates an atmosphere in the theater that's unlike anything I've ever experienced before because the whole setup is these aliens kill anything that makes any sound, anyone who makes any sound. And so you find yourself throughout basically the entire movie if you're lucky enough like me to be in a with a cooperative audience like everybody's afraid to make a sound and when somebody I was in one of those like I pick things or whatever it was Alamo Drafthouse I guess and uh, you know somebody drops like a bottle cap or or they bring a beer to somebody and it's like it's like you're scared like you're gonna be killed. <laughs> Um, So, I mean, I think that that is just just functionally, it's not surprising to me that it did really well. I could see going back to see it multiple times. I definitely told people, like, you need to see this in the theater, don't wait. I'm sure other people did that word of mouth wise. But I'm, I'm interested in, the, in its possibilities for Oscars because John Krasinski is showing off really a whole lot of new sides of himself that we never expected. And after Get Out's performance last year, I don't think you can just blithely dismiss horror as a genre right and uh, I mean he he casts himself in this very dramatic lead that is surprising and he's really good at it and then you know there's a great story with obviously Emily Blunt his wife as the as the female lead um, the kids are both great and it's just a beautifully written and constructed film that that sets a very very um, interesting and and challenging hurdle for itself in its conception, which is like we're basically going to make a movie with no talking. Uh, and, and so I feel like for all those reasons, it, could, it really could go the distance in terms of you know, being a, a movie at the Oscars that has some real traction. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. What do you guys think?
0: We talked about this when it when it came out, and it was you know it had this great screening at South by. And it was like shaping up as a big hit, and kind of wondered about how far the Get Out comparison can take it because a Quiet Place is, I mean, it's a really similar kind of movie where it's a low budget horror movie. It really struck a nerve. People went to see it, but Get Out had this like commentary angle to it that felt so Academy friendly in that way, like the way that they have liked metaphor all along. So that's the that's the part I have a hard time with with Quiet Place. Like the reward for that movie has so much in the box office that I, i'm not sure that they are going to want to stick their necks out for another horror movie a year later they and one without kind of a, a larger metaphor to carry it
2: yeah i think the biggest um narrative really to co- aside from its its you know financial success to come out of a quiet place is that krasinski now basically can do whatever the hell he wants i think
0: which is so crazy it's crazy that this is john krasinski's career
2: yeah, I and mean, this is his third film. You know, like he's and and the t- the two films he made previous, which are pretty small, you know, kind of indie things, don't at all demonstrate what he was able to do with this. So it's basically like a debut in a way. Um, and yeah, I think that like, it'll be really interesting to see what he does after this because, um, he's written himself like Jordan Peele did last year. He's written himself a pretty, pretty nice ticket.
1: Okay. So agreed. It's not get out and it's not going to win best picture and it's not going to be like the cultural phenomenon of the year. Like I think that black Panther has already taken a lot of that, um, out of the way. However, could you not see Krasinski getting a screenplay? nomination for, again, b- given the, the challenge that he set for himself here? And could you not see Emily Blunt getting an, an actress nomination, potentially? I mean, it's it's a pretty great performance.
2: I would love it if Emily Blunt w- was in that race. I mean, she she's deserved it for that and m- many other movies over the years. And I think the interesting thing about thinking about um, Emily Blunt in, in, in terms of in, in the acting race is a movie that hasn't come out yet, but is out next week called Hereditary that was a big hit at Sundance, features an amazing performance by Tony and Colette and uh, you know it, but again, again it's a horror movie and while we saw Daniel Kaluuya n- nominated for a horror movie last year for Get Out again that had sort of a social cachet to it that maybe these other ones don't so, but I don't know I, I I like the idea Mike that like because we haven't had much in the way of Oscar bait so far this year um, I mean Black Panther certainly not traditional Oscar bait um, that we can kind of think kind of you know outside of the box and, and, and consider Emily Blunt or whoever
0: and let us remember that the Golden Globes famously love Emily Blunt and they could very well double nominate her for a, for a Quiet Place and Mary Poppins, don't forget, that's coming in December. Uh, and if she doesn't get a com- an actress in a comedy musical nomination for Mary Poppins, I will, I will eat something crazy because that's definitely happening.
1: Um, one other thing that I'll just throw out there, I don't know if all the rules are, have changed post-Harvey or not, but there is a sign language dimension to A Quiet Place that could be exploited for awards effect. And remember, there was that weird little short that was nominated last year. And didn't it about, win? It, it, did it win? I can't, yeah, it won. It, it won. <laughs> now every Oscar voter allegedly has watched this short film about how it's really important to teach your child who, who has hearing issues uh, sign language and you're a bad parent if you don't. Um, and this family literally survives because they know sign language. That's that's their superpower. Um, so I'm just saying that my inner not Harvey, but some other, um, you know, diabolical awards strategist would uh, would consider bringing that into play later in the year.
0: So that, that voice you heard was Joanna Robinson joining us. Uh, hi, Joanna. Morning. You're just in time because we were just about to talk about uh, your beloved blockers, which I think is the official title you've given it. My, my beloved your be- blockers. beloved blockers. Um, so, Mike, you caught up with this, I think, also recently. And it is something that we talked about when Joanna us out at South By, and we were talking about just kind of how revolutionary and creative it was. And since you brought up screenplay as a possibility for A Quiet Place, is that kind of what you're thinking for blockers, like the spot where you can reward a really clever comedy?
1: I think so, right? I can't see. I really enjoyed it. I can't see it obviously making too much impact at the Oscars. It's a. It's a, ultimately kind of a raunchy comedy, although it subverts a lot of the, um, you know, the tropes of raunchy comedy. But I think, as we discussed on the uh, podcast before, I had seen it. There is the sort of like butt chugging scene that I think is going to be a hurdle for uh, a certain um, brand of Oscar voter. So I don't know. I don't know if leaving that in the screenplay or um, hurts them or not. It's pretty funny. I mean, it's brutally funny. But I don't know. It was it was a really good movie. And again, maybe on the theory that there's a lot of younger voters in the Academy now who are trying to, you know, mix things up and and nominate things that take interesting takes on genres that are maybe more audience friendly than they've traditionally been awards or critic friendly. Um, it's certainly a really well done, hilarious movie that that is not the usual sort of take on high school sex caper.
2: Mike, I think you're forgetting the, the famous butt-chugging scene from Chariots of Fire.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Those athletes get up to all kinds of stuff. I know I'm dreading this conversation late,
3: but I don't know if, if the, the point of sort of re-examining some of these films that came out earlier in the year is to talk about people may be catching them who didn't catch them in the theater. Like that's my hope for blockers, right? That it's going to, it's audience is just going to grow as it becomes available on VOD or, or what have you. And people are going to regret not seeing it in the theater. And it's being, going to just become this like cult comedy classic. And so by the time the awards roll around, yeah, a screenplay nomination for, for, uh, for butt checking, why not?
0: I mean, we, you know, <laughs> remember that the Oscar s- season is so much about all these other awards, like the Critics' Choice Awards, which has a comedy category, the Golden Globes, which has a comedy category. And there's this incentive for studios to resurface these movies and send out screeners, even if it's a long shot for something like a Best Picture nomination. So I'd be surprised if they didn't want to bring blockers back up. I mean, Universal pulled off the Get Out Best Picture nomination last year. Like they know how to run a campaign for an unconventional movie. So why not give it a shot?
1: And bridesmaids was nominated for um, best original screenplay, and and also um, Melissa McCarthy was nominated for a, a supporting role. So it's, I, I, it, to me, it's in it's in the bride, bridesmaids vein, although it's it's in a way even more sort of subversive, I think, than than bridesmaids in a good way.
0: So we've now kind of, so we've gone through some of the the hits from the year that might be worth consideration. And after this, we start running out of widely seen movies because the the box office, just gets a little grimmer. And and Richard, you mentioned maybe you wanted to talk about Love, Simon briefly, which did pretty well. I think maybe it was being positioned as a bigger hit. It's made $40 million thus far. Uh, Do you think that's still got a, a chance to live on through the rest of the year?
2: Oh, I don't know. Love, Simon seems like something that, you know, like, like certain teen movies will benefit when it's on Netflix and it's just sort of in that sort of adolescent ether, <laughs> you know. I think I think it, it, it did a respectable amount of, you know, business at uh, in, in theaters, but I don't think it was necessarily designed for that. Um, but, you know, it's funny, I'm looking back now at, at you know, just wikipedia like the year 2018 in film and looking at that there you know i said that there were no oscar-y movies that had come out but in fact there were sort of i mean there was uh Ch- chappaquiddick and there was um the the lynn ramsey film you were never really here which premiered at Cannes last year to, to rave reviews so i guess it, it there have been a few things that have tried for it but but nothing like you know black panther has uh, you know black panther has swatted them all away i guess
0: yeah Uh, I wanted to talk briefly about what's right next to Love, Simon on Box Office Mojo Rankings, Uh, Paddington 2, which came out last year. It was a 2017 movie in Britain, and Hugh Grant got a BAFTA nomination for supporting actor for it, which is so kooky, but also when you see the movie, it's so perfect. He's really wonderful in it, and I don't dare dream that such a thing could happen here, but um, know, maybe in in a better world, Hugh Grant would be getting a good acting campaign for this.
1: Well, and forgive me if this is just so obvious that it's not worth saying, but it really 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 feels that prestige tv has now taken away the the sort of meaning of this time of year for movies like there's just no reason to go to a movie theater for anything other than either a a communal experience of the blockers kind where you're all laughing and cringing at a disgusting but funny scene or a quiet place where you're all like in this kind of unique experience that I don't know that anyone's going to be able to replicate or Black Panther where you're cheering and and experiencing you know whatever that is Um, but otherwise you know things like Patrick Melrose on Showtime are the that's that's the kind of storytelling that you used to look to Oscar movies for. It's it's based on a really you know classy liter- literary uh, novel or series of novels. Um, it's got you know a Benedict Cumberbatch in the main role. And there's so much of that stuff on TV now that I, I it almost just makes me wonder at what point are the Oscars just gonna give up on movies and and make it about any filmed uh, thing that is great.
0: Oh, can you imagine the crazy turf war they'd start with the Emmys over that? It would tear Hollywood apart. Uh,
1: It would be fun. That would be fun. (laughs) Uh,
0: So, Joanna, since since you're hopping in, is there any other, any other, like, FYC you want to give for something earlier in the year that, I mean, for all the power that we have to get people to consider things? Like, we we just want to go through the first half of the year and make sure that the the worthy stuff doesn't get overlooked as the second half kicks off.
3: Yeah. um, I mean, you guys, I'm so... Grateful that you brought up my beloved blockers. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
0: because
3: what could be better?
0: I guess, did you guys talk about Annihilation at all? No, and I feel like that is the problem with Annihilation is that people keep not talking about it. I know
3: Annihilation had such a muted sort of debut, and um, and and that's a real tragedy, I think, because I think it is an amazing movie overall, but I think it is an especially beautiful movie visually. And it was released on Netflix worldwide and then released in, you know, limited release in theaters uh, in the U.S. And I know a lot of people are just discovering it now as it hits um, VOD and, and other platforms and um, and going, why why did I miss this? <laughs> and so I, I'm hopeful that the visuals on that one, at least, if not some of, I mean, it's too much to hope for some of the performances, I think, but the visuals, possibly a screenplay uh, for Alex Garland, but Ex Machina did so well in award season, and this follow-up for Alex Garland was so just a nothing, a blip on the radar. It's really, really sad. And so I'm hoping that uh, support for this film just grows and grows because I think it's truly special.
2: I have to confess, when, when that movie came out in the U.S., and I was grumbling about the fact that it was going to be on Netflix and, and most other territories, I think it came out in China and here, and that was it, uh, in theaters, uh, I was, you know, gr- you know, Netflix is, you know, going to, it's not the right platform for this movie. When I was in France, I realized that I, I had access to it because, you know, my Netflix was reading as being in France, and so I, <laughs> I rewatched watched Annihilation, so I totally took advantage of something that I uh, was decrying not weeks ago.
0: You went to Cannes and watched a movie that you had Scene I did. Years
2: months earlier. <laughs> I did. Uh,
0: how did it go on Netflix? Because I haven't seen it yet. And I'm it's
2: good. I mean, I, I didn't watch the whole thing. I wanted to watch a couple of particular scenes that were sort of stuck in my head. But I agree, Joanna. I think it's a, such a striking film and it's and it's really too bad that it didn't, I don't know, catch in the way that Ex Machina did. I I I prefer Ex Machina in a way, if only because it's a little simpler and more streamlined, but um but yeah, Annihilation is really interesting and and maybe kind of a victim of this of the weird spring affliction in the way that like the lost city of Z was last year.
0: Mm. Rich, there's anything that you want to stump for?
2: There's a movie that is probably, I mean, it really was at the festivals last year, but I think it was really the best, one of the best reviewed movies of that year. And, and, uh, and and this year, Cameron Collins reviewed it for us this year, uh, which is the Rider, Chloe Zhao's film. That's sort that's really a docudrama about a rodeo um, guy in, in, in South Dakota. Um, that is beautiful and again rapturously reviewed. Um, it's been playing the international festival circuit for about a year now, uh, and I don't know where it stands in Oscarie stuff, but it's definitely one that people uh, should should pay attention to because it's going to be on a lot of top ten lists and all that.
0: That's one that I feel like has been rolling out really slowly over the course mm-hmm. of the summer, uh, and it's I feel, I feel like it's just going to show up in people's towns bit by bit, and maybe that will kind of help it grow as a groundswell. Which is because I do keep hearing about it.
2: Yeah. And, you know, it's to, the, to the extent that like Chloe Zhao, the director, uh, was brought in to direct some, you know, she had an, like, a meeting to about directing some superhero movie. I think it might have been Captain Marvel. Uh, you know, like all this kind of crazy stuff is coming from this movie that still not a lot of people who haven't been to festivals have seen. So I would urge people to seek it out because in the film world, it's something that a lot of people are talking about and are very excited about.
0: Well, looking ahead to the rest of the summer, there's not a Dunkirk coming up on the horizon. It's not going to be quite that kind of year. Uh, We do have Incredibles 2 coming in a couple of weeks, which is uh, always worth considering because the original was regarded as such a classic. This
3: is the only place where this might, uh, our lovely award season podcast is the only place this might be super relevant. I I went to Pixar last week and I saw the short uh, that's in front of Incredibles 2, and it is very different <laughs> from what we usually get. Um, and I I think it could easily make some waves in the animated short
0: category. That's exciting.
3: Yeah, it's a little like oddly dark <laughs> and uh ultimately heartwarming, but like oddly dark at, at a certain point and the style is very different. Um so yeah, I, I was a fan of it.
0: Um well, before we wrap up this kind of catch-up segment of the show, Joanna, I just want to hear about what you did with your Memorial Day weekend, because Con of Thrones sounds like quite a place, and for those of us who are waiting anxiously a whole nother year for your Game of Thrones coverage to return, uh, please tell me about your trip to Westeros. Uh,
3: yeah, I um, when I go on vacation, I go to conventions and talk about Game of Thrones for hours on end. Um, yeah, I went to Dallas uh, and stayed in Hyatt in Dallas. Uh, As classy as you can get. No, it was really fun. And there were about you know, a couple thousand people there. Um, and then there were podcasters from all different uh, places who talk about Game of Thrones. The Reddit community was there. It was just like really deep in the fandom. And then there were, you know, a few actors from the show Hannah Murray, who plays Gilly. Joe De- I got to talk to Joe Dempsey, who plays Gendry on the big stage and make a lot of Dom Hammer jokes. And that was really fun. And I don't know, it's just, it's just, Three to four days, depending on how long you stay, of a fandom just really committed to one subject matter. And I know that sounds like some people's nightmare, but um, it really is, I think, refreshing for some people who, you know, when something like Game of Thrones gets as big as it does, there is no way to avoid the fandom getting somewhat um, toxic or caustic and all this sort of stuff especially as it exists online but when you get just a bunch of people who love one thing together face to face um you just all that's left is the enthusiasm for this thing and so as silly as it sounds um and how as easy as it is to be cynical about it if you just go in with an open mind about it 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 really is a very affirming sort of experience to be like oh yeah this is why i started Writing and and podcasting about this this show because it is great and the people who read about it or listen to it are great and so I, it's it's a yearly boost that I definitely need so it was a great time.
1: Did it change your perspective on any Game of Thrones related things?
3: I'll tell you this much: the attitude has has really shifted uh, about any kind of optimism that George R. R. Martin is going to finish the books anytime soon, uh, just in a year. People have the best and I think the biggest uh, the most popular costume of the con because you know people cosplay uh, dress up as characters from the for the book and stuff like that but the most popular costume was a guy uh, covered in blank pages and he was like going as an incomplete Winds of Winter which is the next book that like George R. R. Martin hasn't finished so that was, a, that was a really popular costume so yeah so people people feel pretty certain about that there's a there's a general sort of um, I don't know. I think people are less uh, protective about the difference between the book and the show in, in this particular realm, just because George R. R. Martin has sort of forfeited his ownership over the ending by not finishing it. So they're just sort of like, OK, let's see what HBO gives us. Um, Hannah Murray and Joe Dempsey. There were some other performances there, like Sam Coleman, who played young Codor is so delightful. But um you know, Hannah Murray and uh, Joe Dempsey are the only actors there who will be on the upcoming season. And they, you know, they said a, a few things or two. They were they were trying to keep to their no spoiler policy as much as possible. But they gave us some hints. And I think everyone is excited, um, apprehensive. And it is interesting to know that this is the last time this will happen before we all know how it ends. And, um, And that's such a huge, huge cultural thing, because for some of these people, not not for me, but for some of these people, this has been a 20 year, you know, affair with this story. So it's it's kind of an incredible moment to be engaging with those
4: people.
0: Talk about how peak TV takes all the cultural moments away. Like it's hard to imagine anything bigger in the next year than the Game of Thrones finale. This year, I'm going to eat better and spend less time and money
5: at the grocery store, thanks to Butcher Box. Butcher Box is the meat delivery subscription that gives me more time for what matters most. Each month, they send a box of the highest quality meats for a better price in the grocery store, which gives me more time to spend cooking and sharing delicious meals with friends and family. two pounds of ground beef and three pounds of bone-in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com slash cadence that's
0: butcherbox.com slash cadence ali And now we're going to share a conversation that our colleague Laura Bradley had with Jordan Klepper, the host of The Opposition with Jordan Klepper. Uh, Laura writes a lot about late night and television for us, and she had a really wide-ranging conversation with Jordan, who is yet another Daily Show alum who has graduated into having his own show and has taken on this character of a conspiracy theorist kind of perfect for the Trump era. They had their conversation on May 11th, which really wasn't that long ago, but as you'll be able to hear, it kind of feels like it. They uh, talk about Roseanne, which obviously uh, that show has gone through a lot this week. Um, And they talk about a North Korea summit that is no longer happening. But I think, as Jordan talks about, you have to move fast to keep up with the news these days. And a lot of the comedy he does stays completely relevant. So I think it is a very worthwhile conversation. Take a listen.
4: Thanks for being here, Jordan. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start with talking a little bit about what it's been like to inhabit this character you've been doing on The Opposition for seven months and change. Has your understanding of Jordan the character evolved or has the show evolved in any significant way since you started?
6: I think the show has evolved as has America over the last uh, seven months. Maybe evolved is the wrong word. That tends to say that we're heading in the right direction. I don't know if I will weigh in on that yet. I would say as we started this show, we were using sources like InfoWars and Breitbart uh, as the, the, the focus of this, this alt perspective and, and what the fringe was at the time. And I think there's been an evolution as to what has happened with those sites. I think you see Steve Bannon as somebody who was a focal point in the Trump administration and is now gone. You also see uh, Fox News, for example, like Sean Hannity has become such a central focus and has gotten even more conspiratorial in a way um, that we've seen – the mainstream or Fox News go fringier. And so I think we've like adapted with uh, with kind of the, the, the evolution of fringe media, alt media, and Fox media to try to kind of catch up on those stories, weigh in more on those stories, and also my character to kind of live in those as well. We often say, like, if Alex Jones is conspiratorial uh, and believing in... <laughs> the water is making the frogs turn gay kind of conspiracies. <laughs> you have Hannity, who's just more so, let's blame everything on Hillary. And so there's a lot of times that we're, we're steering maybe more towards the Hannity conspiracies and dipping only into the Alex Jones ones when they're much more political or charged.
4: That makes sense. And I think because of this sort of sandbox you've just described that can be pretty crazy, I think one thing that sets the opposition apart from other programs in late night is that it can be a little more freewheeling, and spontaneous? Is that something that you are consciously trying to cultivate as you put episodes together?
6: Definitely. I mean, uh, a benefit of starting a show from scratch is you get to you get to adapt and create the show you want to create. And I think like we were building this out of an ideology that it was more against things, but willing to throw something under the bus to adapt the thing that is more advantageous to who you are like my character is selfish he's in the world of trump who's more about winning and will will throw somebody on the bus and grab somebody else if it if it satisfies uh what that win is today i mean we're he's a applauding Kim Jong-un as being uh, an honorable man, literally yesterday, where nine months ago, uh, he's calling him out for being a terrible human being who uh, who murders his own people. And I think it's advantageous to Trump now, so that's that's the world that he lives in. And I think at our show, we have enjoyed the ability to, to freewheel, to uh, turn the volume up to 12, and then when the news shifts, like, adapt to that, I think, like the thing that we love about our show is that we do get to show more than we get to tell, and we get to get, go big, and I think the bigger we go, the more happy we are with the show.
4: That makes sense. I mean, the world that you're playing in is very mercurial, so in a way, your character and your entire show gets to be similarly.
6: Exactly. I think, like, we we try to look for you know again it's it's a reflection of what we're seeing right now you see you know whether it's neil gate or what have you the little molehills that become mountains and i think where we can find molehills and blow them up and create full blown mountains like that's where we have the most fun it's it's already hard enough to heighten the chaos that is 2018 america so wherever we can do that and show that uh we're we're barking up the right tree
4: definitely and another character in this whole world who's inspired you heavily is obviously Alex Jones. And uh, a couple months ago, one of your correspondents, Kobe Livy, actually confronted him outside of a convention. And I'm just wondering, have there been any interactions off screen, because I know he's bashed you a couple times on his own show. Have you guys had any kind of contact outside of what sort of viewers have seen?
6: I haven't. I mean, there's uh, the internet is a great place where people can lob things at you constantly, and so uh, there there <laughs> there's definitely criticism and trolls that exist there. the The interaction that we had was primarily copy, and so I think it, it originally started when we we went more at Alex Jones for uh, his response to the the Parkland shooting. Which he was not happy with, uh, and we were critical of the crisis actor discussion, and and so that caused Alex and Owen Schroyer and people over at Infowars to spend a whole show going in on Jordan Kepler. Uh, <laughs> A guy who sounds terrible if you listen to him. Jordan Klepper, myself, uh, was confused by this Jordan Kepler guy, but he sounded terrible out of the words of out of the mouth of Alex Jones. But the only face to face interaction we have had was Kobe going down there and trying to uh, trying to see if this was indeed Alex Jones or the crisis actor playing Alex Jones. And I don't know if we figured it out to be quite honest with you.
4: <laughs> well, maybe one day. One day. <laughs> One day, the same day that Alex Jones meets uh, famed astronomer Jordan Kepler.
6: <laughs> <laughs> He's out there. We can
4: all get solved. And so the other interesting thing about the opposition is most late night shows are responding to White House fumbles and various national tragedies earnestly, but you are obviously having to do so through the veil of this character. Do you find that that makes it harder to address certain things, easier or just different?
6: Uh, I would say different and harder. Mm-hmm. Um. It is a challenge. It is a good challenge for us. It's, I think, coming into that show, I love being able to articulate something, a frustration through a veil, and so... Uh, we were excited to approach things like that. And it felt like in the landscape at that point, there were so many people who were addressing these things from an earnest point of view. So articulately, it was like, let's see if we can use this tact, the satirical angle. It is really difficult. There are days that, you know, a news story comes in that you just want to shout at. And you're like, well, we have to shout at it through a voice that says the opposite thing, which leaves you, it leaves you fighting with a broadsword as opposed to a scalpel. Mm-hmm. And so there are some issues that our show is less able to bounce around in. And I think and so when we're able to find something in a hypocrisy that exists on the on the far right or with a group and we're able to show that and and build it up that's where it feels like we have a real advantage and we we love that with our show. It's like we can take that wild little bit of trump that trump tidbit and we can make it huge and we can we can show the blind spot that like a privileged white male has and so there are some stories that we definitely gravitate more towards because our show is built to attack those and there are others where it's like oh i wish i could just drop the image and just talk about what is so frustrating right here but if our show can't talk about that one in particular then then we move over towards the ones that we can articulate
4: is there something that you can think of recently that you've just found particularly challenging to deal with
6: well, I think, like, Parkland was a really interesting issue. It's it's one that I, I care a lot about, gun gun violence and the gun control issue. And so, you know, that comes out, and it's, it's so horrific. And, and initially, obviously, it's not a partisan issue. It became one quicker than it ever should have. And I think that was something that was like, well, now once it becomes partisan, we can show how gross and disgusting that is and how opportunistic that is. But right afterwards, it was like, this... This tragedy doesn't need a blowhard to be disgusting about it like that's what Alex Jones was doing. So what we did at that point was like let's talk to actual students who can ground that. And a thing that we found was like I started to echo some of the pushback that the far right was giving these Parkland students crisis actors. They were also the narrative at that time was that they shouldn't be uh, weighing in on these political issues. So I was able to push back a little bit against them. They were able to ground it in reality and articulate the experience that they had. Afterwards, I asked them, I was like, "Uh, what was your experience? How was that? Was that weird talking back to a character? And uh, the response was it was it was great. It felt like I was talking to the Internet which to us was a, a success. It was like, oh, these these students have been fighting back on the Internet. They grew up on this. They've been getting trolled. And so for us to kind of be the voice of the Internet and see the Internet get pushed back on, I think was a success for us.
4: Yeah, there was a sort of a space where they could respond to criticism in a way that they hadn't been able to before. Exactly. And I had been very curious to see how you would respond to gun control and mass shootings just because you had actually already done a special, Jordan Klepper solves Guns. Yeah ahead of uh, your show premiering. And another thing that I was wondering is just with issues like that and other particularly serious issues, how do you and your writers come up with exactly what is the appropriate way to address it? Because like you said, you don't always want to see a blowhard character being terrible about something that's actually tragic.
6: Exactly. Yeah, I think we we have big discussions in our morning meetings about how we actually feel about these things and how we want to go at them I think wherever we can get articulate voices on as guests and push backing against that it allows us to go deeper I think you have me too is also a movement that doesn't necessarily fall along partisan lines and that's what we're seeing right now and as somebody who plays off of this partisan hackery and that's where we find comedy like that's a harder world for us to navigate and so what we often look to comment on is the reaction to these things and the hypocrisies that fall within that it's more so us looking for reflections of this character in the real world and then using that as a template to kind of build that satire.
4: And then another factor in late night, especially now, is just that you have to respond to all of these things so quickly. We're sort of talking about your process, with it, but we haven't really noted just how little time you often have to come up with what your strategy is. And then you're also competing with Twitter, which gets a head start on you and contending with the fact that you're coming on hours after you've shot I'm just wondering what it's like to deal with that challenge. And as somebody who obviously was on The Daily Show before this, have you felt that clip sort of pick up pace?
6: Oh, for sure. It's I mean, it's exhausting. We talked about it at The Daily Show. There really was a pre-Trump and post-Trump uh, shift in the news and the amount of news that comes in. So you can't beat Twitter. Twitter's going to attack that joke before you even came up with it. I think that's that's what's so fascinating. It's something that breaks at Nine in the morning, sometimes we're looking at, like, is this going to be a story at eleven o'clock at night? And also there is this new weird period where, like we're writing this show and the show's locked for us at six or six thirty. Like stuff that happens between four and six o'clock might get picked up in ways that doesn't happen between six and ten o'clock. So we really are looking at the the day's news broken up into small little hour chunks and when we can approach it. I think for us at the show, we evolved the format of our show slightly, where we would do larger chunks for our entire act one, and we've started to really try to break that down into little trays. So that what's a little bit different with, like, say, our show and even the Daily Show as well, compared to what would be, you know, a Kimmel or a Colbert, they have a monologue which gives them more flexibility to adapt to something that happened twenty minutes ago. We are doing a little bit more narrative based, and as a character, I'm I'm trying to approach it with like a little bit larger takes or bigger bites of the apple. So we've had to sort of boil down these pieces like let's write three, two to three pages stories for the day. And then if something breaks at four, let's throw one of them out, rewrite one now into two pieces so it can fit into the whole. So the format has to shift because you need to leave space in your show to to comment on what just happened. At the same time, you need to be okay with not commenting on everything. And that's something as a host and as an EP I've had to learn where it's like – you're not going to get at everything. The job of this show is not to be a new show. It is to be a show that is commenting on what is what we can comment best on and what we care about. And so, if we miss that one story, let's get at it tomorrow, or or trust that the world will move on and somebody else will comment it in a way that we can we can find something else.
4: That still has to be frustrating. I will sometimes. tell
6: you, it is exhausting and uh, and it's frustrating. There's so much input. on... Um, the days before Trump at The Daily Show, we were choosing what we wanted to talk about. We also had the ability to let something gestate for a few days to get, (laughs) that helps for writers to get second passes, to build stronger, more coherent arguments. I think a challenge for our show and also what we're trying to get better at is allowing some portions of our shows to have more gestation time, to not have to be so reactive. It's, It's better for content and quality to have something that can be around for a day or two. So, like, but that's not the total reality that we live in right now, so it is a balance. And as as somebody who has to constantly be curating, I do wish there was less input.
4: How do you decide what kinds of topics can hold? Like, what kinds of topics you can actually think about for a couple days before you address them?
6: I think when we talk about patterns, I think when we we find stuff that feels like a pattern, we have what we call second acts that are buckets. Like, a war on men is something that, like, I think our show is built to talk about because there is this... (laughs) this white male victim who feels like he's being attacked. It's what Tucker Carlson talks about a lot on his show. And so I think that's a fun element. It's a fun cross for us to bear on our show. So there are smaller stories that fit as examples to that overall thesis, and those are things we can collect and not have to talk about day of, but be like, oh, let's build this out to something we talk about four days from now. We have religion buckets and things that we then also are looking for. These are religious stories that we can kind of fill into a larger thesis later. So smaller stories are things we can hold on to and build something out of. Also, I think we're getting a little bit better at, like, if we don't talk about it today because our show is full and we care about it tomorrow, that's okay. Okay. We can sit on something for a day and still comment on it because it's it's more important to get something out that you care about than it is just to get something out.
4: Definitely. And on the other side of the coin, I've noticed that both The Opposition and Daily Show have gotten very good about using social media to sometimes put out a quicker response to something that, you know, reasonably you would think you just can't wait. And so, for instance, I noticed uh, when the Bill Cosby verdict came out, you had a video in which your character was worried about what this implication meant for Donald Trump. (laughs) If uh, Cosby, with the Cosby verdict, what kind of fallout could await our president? And I'm just wondering how many dimensions is your brain having to work on at once to be like, okay, this is a thing that we should do now. Is there somebody obviously there's probably somebody helping you make these decisions, I would hope.
1: I
6: will take all the credit. So but (laughs) well, I will say that is a good example. And you you pointed out we had to create an Internet, an Internet segment for us called This Can't Wait, because stuff is breaking at four that will be eaten up by the Internet in three hours and if it doesn't get on our show, it won't be talked about tomorrow. So we're like, let's build something that we can film quickly. In the world of our show, Like the format of that feels more akin to like what the Infowars does. But that is now a weapon for us. And we live in a new era of late-night television where three years ago... Everything was filtered into what are we talking about on tonight's television show? And for us all day it's like this is what the television show looks like. This thing's breaking. Can this be an internet video piece that we do? This thing's breaking, but it's got a shelf life of an hour. This is let's let's tweet about this. We are trying to build a social media world that's also built on this 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 faux site called the Shop Position. And so let's filter things through that too. So it is constant input and it's let's put these in different buckets because we also see people are coming to our show through uh, short clips of our show that they're seeing online, through just things that we film specifically for the Internet. Like, you have to find different outlets because people aren't just ingesting this uh, in a linear fashion like they used to.
4: Definitely. And another thing that we've come to The Daily Show a couple times in this conversation, and one striking thing about the way Late Night has changed to me is just how many Daily Show alums have their own shows now. In Late Night, there's you, there's obviously Trevor Noah still, John Oliver... Colbert on CBS, and now you've got Michelle Wolf and Hasan Minhaj getting their own shows on Netflix. What is it like for you just to see this sort of daily show takeover of the entire landscape?
6: It's exciting. I mean, I'm, you know, Michelle and Hasan are are two incredibly talented people that I got to work with. And I think it's to be able to see such talented, thoughtful people get their own opportunity to do their own show. Like we we are incredibly fortunate to have those kinds of to have those opportunities and it it just shows you how how America right now wants to talk about what is happening around us and that like it feels like there's a definite desire to uh, if you're going to go into comedy or you're, you're going to turn on the television at night, it has to be something that is reflecting this chaotic 2018, this Trump administration, this this world that feels alien to what it felt like three years ago. And so I think there's the fact that there are more voices who get to comment on that uh, is, is really is really exciting.
4: Even philosophically, it feels like a lot of shows have sort of shifted toward that more daily show approach, very topical, with a clear point of view on things. Why do you think The Daily Show has had such a sort of profound influence on the way late night shows function?
6: Well, I think late night shows are traditionally the thing you went to bed with, and I think in the, the older days, it was something that wanted you wanted to feel like it was an escape from the day. And now it feels like you go to it as a summation of it. Like we all experience this thing. We've been looking at our phones. We've been getting all of this input about a world that is is shifting underneath our feet. Uh, when you turn on that show, you want uh, somebody to filter through it. And I think a lot of that credit goes to Jon Stewart, who who wanted to create a show like that who created a show like that that was both funny and smart and was able to to comment on the experience everybody was having and i think from that um, he had incredibly high expectations of everybody who worked there. He created, like, a blueprint of a way to format and talk about the news. And I think, like, and he was amazing at hiring such talented people with interesting voices. And so I think, like, it's no surprise that the people from that show have gone on to do such interesting things with their voices because I think he was somebody who had a vision for the way in which he wanted to approach the news. And, and now you combine that with a time where people really want that and want to respond to that, and, and you get these voices who 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 get to speak.
4: And obviously, you're still friends and have that sort of bond with various alums from The Daily Show. But now, as we head into Emmys, they're also your competition in a weird way. What is it like to sort of be the new guy in the room entering this race <laughs> of Variety Talk? <laughs>
6: well, I think it's, uh, I mean, it's exciting. I think be, being the new guy in the room, the a big benefit to being the new guy is like, Anything can happen for us. Like we're exce- we get to we get to take big swings. We get to try new things. We get to do pop up shows in the living room of of kids outside of DC. You know, we get to we get to throw trampolines on our set and <laughs> eat giant Big Macs and try to play a weird character who's on the fringe. And so, for us, I'm super proud of our show. I think we have such hardworking people and. I think our show is fun and exciting and different. And so I think you go into an award season, you really can't lose. I'm proud of what our show has done, and you know but I see all these other shows as well. I see Sam B, who's a, a friend and doing such incredible work. John Oliver is so smart and kind of changed the way in which you can attack these, uh, these ideas. And so and Trevor is a, is a friend. Uh, <laughs> I'm an alum of his show. He's an EP of our show. So I think like, I look at, at that category and it makes me proud to be a part of, of that, that team.
4: So if I had to guess, your character would probably say that he does not care about the Emmys at all because they're rigged and whatever. But I'm curious sort of <laughs> what your mindset is about that show. You know what?
6: I bet I bet my character and me are probably really aligned on this perspective here. <laughs> I think, you know, <laughs> the outward face is like, man, that's rigged. It's not about that. This is just a bunch of elites who get together. They pick up beforehand about who should win this show. Man, we don't want that. We don't need that. But deep down, my character is like, boy, if I could only get invited. <laughs> to the ball, which I think is very true to the people that we satirize. It's like, man, I don't want to be part of Big Hollywood, but I would totally be a part of Big Hollywood. <laughs> and for me, I think, you know, award season is an exciting season. I think there's so much good work being done out there. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm super proud of the work that we do at our show. And if anybody sees that and they uh, want to give that a thumbs up, I will take a pat on the back, you know, a respectful pat on the back. We do this because we we care about what's happening, we and we love being able to comment on it. So, I think whoever's going to win any of those awards, uh, it's going to go to a, a deserving person. Except for Trevor, I hope he loses.
4: Sorry, Trevor. Yeah,
6: sorry, Trevor. <laughs>
4: So going into award season, there's obviously a ton of shows in contention for Emmys. I'm just wondering, are there any shows in particular that you think your character would be rooting for? I'm just thinking off the top of my head, he's got to have some thoughts about Handmaid's Tale and especially the new Roseanne. Like he's got to be fist pumping over Roseanne.
6: Yeah, My character hates the awards. He hates Hollywood, but he does love Roseanne. I think Roseanne is, and it's, as so many people on, on on the right media have now lifted that up. Uh, a win is a win. I think my character would also think Kanye should win an Emmy without <laughs> fully understanding how the Emmys work uh, because now Kanye apparently is somebody on <laughs> the right is going to completely uh, be excited about. And I think The Handmaid's Tale is definitely uh, a good example of a show that my character would see as a documentary and an inspiring one at that. And so hopefully we we'll win Best best New Documentary.
4: <laughs> a really good template for where we should be going exactly. in country.
6: I think he was like, this is great. This is Mike Pence's America. Let's get behind it. Oh, God.
4: So that's actually another thing I wanted to talk about, Kanye and Roseanne. Just as someone who wades through this world of the alt-right every day, I'm curious what you see as its relationship to pop culture, just sort of with Kanye tweeting pro-Trump and the new Roseanne. Do you get the sense that the alt-right feels they're gaining traction in this area that's just been dominated by coastal elite ideals?
6: I think if you look at the far right, everybody just wants to feel like they belong I can I can empathize on all of those things, but everything is so also a competition right now. So this Kanye thing is an example of Kanye being Kanye, liking that attention, liking that controversy, sampling things that uh, without maybe having be aware of the the context and or the effect of those things. Let Kanye be Kanye, but the fact that that is, embraced so hard by people on the right as like vindication of these values, even though they were criticizing his POV months earlier. I think it's just an example of like, there's not a lot of ideology that's connected to some of these far fringe groups. There's just this idea of being oppositional, being a contrarian and hoping you can win. And so you see these examples and you see people wanting to take them as their own as proof that they are a success or being heard. And Roseanne is another interesting uh, thing as well, because it is such a a cultural flashpoint. Um, I I have not watched much of the new Roseanne, but I think watching people talk about the new Roseanne in and of itself is entertaining.
4: Watching people talk about Roseanne is almost an entire separate show of itself.
6: It really is. I mean, it, it does sort of expose people's biases. Also, what is a joke? What is satire? And what is like? are we open enough to have the conversation about like uh, are we satirizing these points of view are we celebrating these points of view is it bad to celebrate these points of view like we should have shows that aren't just from the monolithic left that show people uh, in Trump's America in a light that's not just people from the left uh, talking down to them um But we do live in a politically charged time where whatever you put out there is going to be interpreted as not only art, but as like activist art. And I think that's an okay conversation for us to have. But I hope that we can see it through the right perspective so that everything doesn't have to be a culture war. It can also be a cultured conversation. And and maybe there's something we can get out of that.
4: Well, at the rate we're going, we're very close to getting a Kanye West talk show, right? So, I mean, that would be that's another example of a show that wouldn't (laughs) be from the same monolithic perspective. I think you're right. And so looking forward, what do you see as sort of the future of your character and your show? Because obviously the alt-right isn't going to go anywhere anytime soon, regardless of who's in office. But I do have to wonder how the opposition would evolve if, say, Trump loses in 2020.
6: I think what is so exciting about our show here and that if Trump Trump lost, I think this show is about winners and it's about following where this fringe and this far right decides to hitch their wagons. And so I think much like Don, Donald Trump. Right now we are on the Trump train. The opposition is. And and so like Steve Bannon was a great example of somebody who was like our king, the guy our guiding light. And as soon as Trump dropped him, we were we dropped him like a, a hot potato as well because he was no longer a winner in this world. And so I think the show itself is evolving towards what is starting to feel more and more like state T V. It's starting to feel more and more like it's speaking for the president and for this country as Fox starts to go more And harder in that direction as Hannity becomes somebody who is (laughs) dictating policy night in and night out to a president. And Fox and Friends is like the conversation we have. And so I see our show evolving harder in that direction. And in 2020, if Trump drops and they get a brand new guy to jump on board, I think much like these people on the far right, this show would be willing to drop uh, in, in a moment's notice just to get on the winning team.
4: Probably. I could see that happening. Those were all the questions I had. Is there anything that you want to add that we haven't chatted about already?
6: I mean, in in terms of talking about this award season, we are we are very excited about all of this coming up, and I think uh, it's been a wild a wild seven months right now of our show, and we just did our hundredth episode, and. It is a show that I am incredibly proud of. I think there are a lot of shows out there and there's a lot of news out there. But what is inspiring getting to work on a show like this is there are so many people who work so hard who want to comment and interact with this news. And I feel like I'm a I'm a lucky guy to be able to to work on a show with so many talented folks.
4: Absolutely. Thank you again so much for your time. Or Thank you. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thanks,
0: as always, for listening. Please find us on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review. We always appreciate it. Um, you can find us all at VanityFair.com, and we're all on Twitter at little gold Men. and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Mike.
1: Mike underscore Hogan.
0: And Joanna. Joe wrote this, And we lost Richard, but he's at RYLAWS. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth, and this week's award for the boldest and earliest Oscar prediction goes to Joanna Robinson.
3: Yeah, a screenplay nomination for butt checking. why not?